Have you ever wondered if you could build a monk that wore armor and was still really effective? What would you do without your unarmed strikes? I've got a really good idea. So if you want to know what it is, stay tuned. Welcome to D4. Hey everybody, so here at D4, D&D uh, &D Deep Dive, uh, 4Ds, each week we take a deep dive into character builds for our favorite role-playing games, usually Dungeons & Dragons, but as most of you know, we do other games too. I like to theorycraft about builds, crunch numbers about them, not so that I can tell you the right way or the best way to play a certain character, but to explore one potential way to build something with the hopes of creating a character that's both really powerful but also really fun to play. So if you enjoy creating characters for your favorite role-playing games almost as much as you enjoy playing the actual game itself, or if you're just looking for tips or ideas on how to build something that you're thinking about playing, then welcome home. This is where you belong, and I am so glad that you're here, so thanks for watching. My name's Colby. I put out character build videos every Tuesday, and additional bonus content once in a while too, so if you like what you see, I hope that you'll like the video, subscribe, and even click on the notifications bell so that you never miss an episode. Just in case you missed the announcement, I've recently revamped my membership offerings, so if you're interested in getting like a written step-by-step -step guide to help you recreate these characters that I build in-game, or joining the community in our D4 Discord server, or even hanging out with me and my friend and other channel members once a month in a live RPG-fueled Q&A chat, or if you just want to support the channel financially, then just click on the little join button down there somewhere and learn more. It's not expensive, and it earns you my undying gratitude. <laughs> Okay, let's be honest, you have that anyways, just for watching, thank you. But maybe just like a little bit more undying gratitude, if such a thing can be quantified. Anyways, here is my preamble to today's video. Back in, I think it was 2020, Wizards of the Coast put out what I think is their best post 5e release book to date. Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. It felt to me like that book was the same thing as like an old school expansion to a video game. It added so much great content from new spells to new feats to new racial options to new subclasses and even some additional features and abilities for every single class. I can't imagine playing the game without it personally. Monks, underpowered as I think they are, got quite a few little optional class features given to them in that book and the one that intrigued me most was the key fueled attack feature. This tells us that when we spend a key point as part of our action, then we can use a bonus action to make an unarmed strike, or interestingly, a monk weapon attack. I remember first reading this and being like, I mean, I can already use a bonus action to make an unarmed strike if I take the attack action. And I mean, wouldn't I rather spend a bonus action and a key point for flurry of blows rather than a bonus action weapon attack, since in almost every case, two attacks are better than one, even if my flurry of blows unarmed strikes are only doing like a d4 or a d6 of damage? This feature felt super niche, like maybe it was good if you were a four elements monk. Wait, why are you a four elements monk? <laughs> Hey, they can be half decent if you build them right. Watch this. Anyways, yeah, if you were using key points to cast a spell, for example, then with this, you could at least get a weapon attack with your bonus action, right? But I've always wanted to try and do a build where making a third weapon attack on our turn was just better than two unarmed strikes. It's not easy to do as a monk. Heavy weapons can't be monk weapons, so it wouldn't work to like take great weapon master and use a great axe here, for example. And so aside from that, 
I mean, what weapon could we possibly use as a monk that would do so much damage that it would be better than two unarmed strikes? Well, I can think of two potential options. First up, we could do a ranged weapon and use sharpshooter, right? That would be cool. It would be pretty powerful. It would be pretty unique on the one hand for a monk, but I've done a ton of builds that basically do this by just using a hand crossbow and getting the crossbow expert feet, right? Maybe it's not that unique after all. As for the second weapon that we might be able to use here, I'm sure most of my longtime viewers know where my brain is going here. But for the rest of you, I want it to be a surprise. Wait, I've already spoiled it with the title of the video, haven't I? <laughs> oh, I always do that. I think I'm being so sneaky as I'm writing the script. Curse you needing to have interesting titles and thumbnails in order for my videos to get lots of views. Okay, fine. Yes, you've seen the title of the video. We're talking about my favorite spell in the game. Illogical though it may be, Shadowblade. I won't wax too poetic about it here because I've done so many times in the past, most notably uh, here with the Shadowblade build, I guess. But the wonderful thing about the spell is that it gives you a weapon that does way more damage, potentially, than really any other weapon in the game, including almost at least every magic weapon. 2d8 for a shadow blade, or later 3d8 or even 4d8 per hit, that's just a lot of damage per hit. And so finding ways to actually make more attacks with that weapon is potentially pretty powerful. I've only done one build before where I was making three or more attacks per turn with the shadow blade. It was a, the Bladesinger Nova build where we were actually throwing the shadow blade. But that was a burst damage build and not something you could do round after round. So my question is sort of, is there a way to get three attacks per round with this weapon sustainably? I think monks might be the only ones who could without relying on an ally to cast haste on you or something. So let's talk about how it works in D&D build number 151, the Shadowblade Monk. The, well, I can't really call it the Shadow Monk, that would be misleading. The Shadow Samurai I really like, but that's also misleading because Samurai is a fighter subclass. Let's just go with the Shadowblade Monk. Huge thanks to my good friend Randall Hampton for the fantastic artwork that he created for this character concept. He does this every week. If you'd be interested in following him on social media to see if you could commission him to create some art for your character or even your entire party potentially i will as always put links in the video description on how to do so thanks randall and also first i want to talk to you guys about world anvil some more because not only are they a sponsor for the video this week they're also a company that i happen to already use and am a huge fan of for those of you who don't know about world anvil they're basically the greatest software out there for gms to build their homebrew world and for players to interact seamlessly with that world. For you world builders, you game masters, World Anvil supports over 45 systems, including Dungeons and & Dragons and Pathfinder, as well as many, many more. It will even facilitate letting you create your own system to work with their software. They make it incredibly easy to create wiki-style presentations of your world and your writing so that you can keep track of everything you build. They also have a really fantastic interactive map builder that you can customize to your heart's content, and even chronicles that combine timelines with those maps so that you can plot and keep track of what happened where and when in your world, whether before your campaign started or while it's going. Presenting information to your players in a digestible, user-friendly way has never been easier. And yes, speaking of you players, World Anvil is for you guys too. It not only will make it easier than ever to access 
everything your GM wants you to know about their world and the campaign, but you can even build your character right from within World Anvil's site with their built-in character sheets, regardless of the setting that your game is taking place in, since I can pretty much guarantee that their software is compatible with whatever TTRPG system you're using. Not only can you keep track of your hit points, your spell slots, your inventory, but it even has a fantastic system for like backstory creation, journal and note entries. It's better than any other software that I've seen for this. World Anvil truly does it all. I mean, they even have amazing tools for people who want to write a novel from the world that they've built, and even ways to help you publish and monetize your book that you've created. So please do yourself a favor and go check them out. You will not regret it. Sign up for a free account, if nothing else, to see what you might be missing. When you do, I would appreciate it if you would use this URL here so that they know I sent you. I'll put a link in the video description as well, of course. And if you decide on purchasing a yearly subscription, regardless of the level at which you purchase, if you use the code D4 at checkout, you will save a humongous 40%. 40, yeah. That's incredibly generous. There is no way that's a good ROI for World Anvil here. <laughs> if someone from the company is watching, let me know in the comments if this is actually a good return on investment for you guys. <laughs> it is, it's so incredibly generous. Anyway, huge thanks to World Anvil. You guys are awesome. And let's jump into the build. At level one, for our starting class, yes, we are going to start off with Monk here. We obviously need at least three levels in a different class to get the Shadowblade spell, but I think the character just works better and feels stronger, both conceptually and mechanically, actually, if we spend some time in Monk first. So, when we first meet our champion, they are a humble monk, yes, but I see this character as more of like a samurai in training. I know there's a fighter class for samurais already. Call them something different if you want to, a ronin, a bushi, or another word that has nothing to do with this world's Japanese culture, but has some conceptual similarities. But this hero is, I think, either working hard to earn the right to don their family or clan's armor, yes, armor, like I kind of teased at the beginning, and use their fabled and powerful magical blade. Or they might even, like, have had the privilege of using both of those at one point, but now have done something to disgrace themselves. And so they've had those things stripped away from them until they can redeem themselves, reclaim their honor, and make use of the revered armaments once again. For now, we're starting over, almost reduced to a childlike state, unworthy of using anything but our bodies, and perhaps a simple staff to defend ourselves. We have to master those things first before we can be trusted with and or capable of mastering the more advanced tools. As for our race, I want to go half-elf for a couple of reasons that you can probably guess. First of all, this character, as most monks, is going to be super mad. Multiple ability score dependent. And especially since we're going to be multi-classing into a spellcaster capable of getting Shadowblade, right? Wood Elves give the best ability score bonuses of any race in the game. Second, maybe only to Mountain Dwarves. We get one plus two to an ability score of our choice and two plus ones. And we need every single one of those increases. But also, yes, of course, I want Elven accuracy later. We'll get to it. As for the half-elf subrace that we get to choose, yes, half-elves get a sub-race ever since the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guidebook. I'm just going to say pick your favorite, but I'd probably go with either Drow for some useful once-per-day spellcasting, or Wood Elf for an extra five feet of move speed. Most monks don't actually need more move speed, but actually we might need it more than most monks, eventually at least, and I'll get to that in a bit. 
As for our starting ability scores, I assume we're going point by as always and say let's get a 15 dexterity and take a plus two there, a 15 constitution plus nothing, 13 wisdom plus one, and then a 12 charisma plus one. Yes, it's going to be really gross to have a 15 constitution and we're not going to be correcting it for quite some time. So if your campaign is going to end before like level 13, I would go 14 constitution there and maybe bump your charisma to 14 instead. What can I say? Monk Gish is mad. As for our starting equipment, as most monks, we don't need a lot here, but I'd probably grab a quarter staff as that's going to be the hardest hitting weapon available to us right now, doing a d8 of damage if we use it with two hands. And yeah, quarter staffs are versatile. But yeah, no armor needs because monks get unarmored defense at level one, which tells us that our AC is equal to 10 plus our dexterity modifier and our wisdom modifier. So at this level, that's only going to be a 15 AC while unarmored. And that's not great, but it isn't horrible. It will get better eventually. Don't worry. Also, at Monk 1, we get the martial arts ability. This tells us a number of things. So long as we're unarmored and not using a shield, we can use dexterity instead of strength for our plus to hit and damage with unarmed strikes and monk weapons, which are simple weapons that aren't two-handed or heavy and short swords. We can use our martial arts die for damage on both of the unarmed strikes and monk weapons. It's a d4 for now, but it scales with monk levels. And when we take the attack action with an unarmed strike or a monk weapon, we can make an unarmed strike with our bonus action. So for now, that means we bonk with our quarter staff and then unarmed strike on our turn. And it makes a pretty solid level one character. At level two, we get unarmored movement. And this gives us 10 more feet of move speed, again, when we're unarmored or unshielded. We are, yes, perfecting our body as best we can here. And then monks also get key points, which are used to fuel most all of our cool monk abilities. We get one key point per monk level, they reset on a short rest, and for now we can spend them to either disengage or dash as a bonus action thanks to Step of the Wind, take the dodge action as a bonus action thanks to Patient Defense, or make two unarmed strikes instead of one as a bonus action thanks to Flurry of Blows. Making three attacks on our turn a couple of times per short rest now, again, pretty decent level two character. We also get the dedicated weapon feature at this level, the first of the gifts given us from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, but it is going to be a bit redundant for us as I'll get into next level. So at level three, we get first up deflect missiles. This is always cool and fun. It lets us use our reaction when we're hit by a ranged weapon attack to reduce the damage by a d10 plus our dexterity modifier plus our monk level, reducing most ranged weapon attacks to zero. And if we reduce it to zero, we can spend a key point to throw it back, treating it as a monk weapon. But then we get, importantly, our monastic tradition, our monk subclass. And can you guess what we're doing? Yes, you probably can. We are going Kensei. This is absolutely perfect for a character like us who really wants to focus on building around being the master of one weapon in particular, right? At least eventually. Kenseis get some really neat features at this level. Path of the Kensei is basically a three features in one kind of thing. First, we get to pick one melee and one ranged weapon that lack the heavy and special properties, though the longbow also works. And this would probably be the way to like make a ranged monk that can take sharpshooter and get bonus action attacks with sharpshooter and stuff like that. It could work really well. And yes, it is on my to-do list to make a ranged monk. Now we get proficiency with the weapon if we didn't have it already. And the weapons that we choose are considered monk weapons for us. I would suggest going with the longsword here, mostly because I consider this 
this character training to master the blade, but feel free to go battle axe or warhammer or something instead if you want. Now, while we are holding this weapon, the agile parry ability tells us that if we make an unarmed strike as part of our attack action, so not as a bonus action, then we get a plus two bonus to our armor class. But keep in mind, you know, we don't have extra attack yet, so that means we're not even using our weapon to make an attack because it's got to be part of the attack action. We're making an unarmed strike with our action, probably another one or two with our bonus action, and then, yeah, since we made an unarmed strike with our action, the weapon's going to give us a plus two bump to our armor class. And you know what? That might be worth it. Worth considering, at least. Especially, yeah, once we do get extra attack, because then only one of our two attacks we make with our action has to be an unarmed strike, right? So we're giving up a little bit of damage for an extra plus two to our armor class. We also get Kensei's shot here, which gives us an extra d4 of damage on our ranged Kensei weapon attack if we use our bonus action for it. Not awesome, but we're probably not going to be making an unarmed strike with our bonus action if we're focused on using ranged weapons. So at least we're getting a little mileage out of our bonus action this way if we need to be in range. Finally, at level three, yes, we get that feature from Tasha's that I started this episode off talking about, key-fueled attack. To recap, this tells us that if we spend a key point as part of our action, doesn't have to be an attack, then we can make a weapon attack with our monk weapon or an unarmed strike as a bonus action. Right now, as a Kensei monk, I don't think we have a way to spend a key point as part of our action. Flurry of Blows, Patient Defense, and Step of the Wind are our only key point spenders, and those are all bonus action things. But we will make great use of this eventually, don't worry. At level four, we get Slow Fall. This lets us use our reaction to reduce falling damage by five times our monk level, which means we could fall 50 to 60 feet on average right now without taking any damage at all. Monks and cats always land on our feet. So cool. And then, yes, we get another little feature from Tasha's that I often forget to mention, quickened healing. This lets us spend two key points and our action, ouch, to heal ourselves for a roll of our martial arts die plus our proficiency bonus. Yeah, you can see why I often forget to mention it. <laughs> I mean, that's like four and a half hit points of healing on average. It's hard to imagine a time where this would be worth it in combat especially, but hey, if you do this in combat, now you could make a weapon attack with your bonus action instead of an unarmed strike, so... That's something. Most importantly at this level, of course, is the ability score increase or feat that we get. And yes, as you've no doubt predicted, because I already told you, <laughs> weren't you listening? Uh, yeah, elven accuracy. My favorite feat. I am a sucker for elves and accuracy. With this feat, which we can't take unless we are an elf or a half-elf, no, no, custom lineage doesn't count. I already tried that and Jeremy Crawford said no, big jerk face. Anyways, Elven Accuracy gives a plus one to, for us, our dexterity, making that a lovely 18, and then tells us that when we make an attack with our dexterity, or intelligence, or charisma, or wisdom, and we have advantage on the attack roll, then we now get to roll three d20s instead of two. And that does really nice things for our damage, especially at higher enemy armor classes when we have advantage. Hooray! At level 5, we get Stunning Strike, which is a great feature when it works. When you make a melee weapon attack, yes, unarmed strikes count. You can spend a key point to try and stun your enemy. They make a constitution save against our wisdom-based DC. If they succeed, which they probably will, nothing happens, and we've wasted a key point. But if they fail, glory hallelujah, they are stunned until the end. The end 
of our next turn, meaning they basically can't do anything and attacks against them have advantage, etc. It's awesome. When it works, I'm not planning on using it. But here's another thing now that would let us potentially make a weapon attack with our bonus action if we tried to stunning strike them as part of our action, right? Whether the stun landed or not. Again, right now we'd get more damage out of using that key point and bonus action for flurry of blows. But if you're trying to stun and otherwise save your key, Sure, take that d10 longsword attack instead of the, well, actually d6 unarmed strike right now because don't forget at this level our martial arts die does go up to d6 here. We also get our final optional class feature from Tasha's at this level, Focused Aim, which is actually a pretty decent one if we have the key to burn. It says that if we miss with an attack roll, we can spend one to three key points to add plus two to hit for each key point spent, potentially turning the miss into a hit. Yeah, it's expensive, but I mean, if some monster is up next and you know that they only have a few hit points and you're pretty confident that you just barely missed, it can be a game changer. It's not super sustainable, but it would trigger key-fueled attack, and if you're getting a short rest after every combat encounter, you might be able to use it at this level you depending on depending on the encounter you might be able to use it once or twice and still flurry of blows on most of your turns it's not a bad option to have in your back pocket in case of emergencies most importantly at this level is the simple extra attack feature that we get of course giving us two attacks on our turn instead of one and yeah i just might be making regular use at this level of our Kensei's Agile Parry now, like I said. A d6 unarmed strike instead of a d10 weapon attack, trading 2 damage for plus 2 to AC. Not that I'm going to make that assumption when I do the first damage report, of course. Survivability be damned. But at level 6, we get key empowered strikes, and this just tells us that our unarmed strikes are now considered magical for the purpose of overcoming resistance to non-magical weapon attacks, which some monsters will, yeah, start to have around this level. We also, as a Kensei, get one with the blade, which is kind of two features in one. Magic Kensei weapons tells us basically the same thing as key empowered strikes, but for our Kensei weapons, if we aren't already using a magic weapon anyways. But then we get the pretty nice deft strike ability too. This tells us that once per turn, when you hit with a Kensei weapon, you can spend a key point to deal extra damage equal to our martial arts die once per turn. I mean, okay, fine. That's not amazing. You'd be better off spending key to turn a near hit into an actual hit if you're looking for a way to spend key points on your action to get a bonus action weapon attack. But hey, if you keep hitting and, again, you've got a little key to spend, it's a little damage bump. But yeah, we don't even have our Shadow Blade yet, so we're still better off spending our still rather small key point pool to Flurry of Blows on our turn most of the time. And that is what I'm going to assume we're doing when we do our first damage report. Because at level 6, that's what it's time for. Tactics are fairly straightforward for our character at this level. We simply run up to our target and make two versatile longsword attacks for a d10 each, then two unarmed strikes with flurry of blows, spending a key point, and our bonus action. Each of those four attacks adds four damage from our dexterity modifier, and that's about it. Now, we've got options here, of course. We could spend key to turn a miss into a hit. We could spend key to add a d6 to one of our attacks once per turn. We could even make one longsword attack and three unarmed strikes to raise our armor class by two. And yeah, honestly, that's probably what I'm doing with this character in-game. If most combat encounters in 5e last between four to six turns, I'll just assume that we are spending a key point each round to flurry of blows and nothing else, and hope that you're getting a short rest after each combat encounter. You do something a little 
different if and when the situation calls for it. If you have advantage, then you're gonna get Elven Accuracy Super Advantage, but we're not currently doing anything to give ourselves advantage inherently, so I'm not gonna assume that we have it at the moment. Here's hoping that you've got an ally like knocking enemies prone or casting fairy fire or something. Anyways, if everything hits, we would be doing a total of 2d10 plus 2d6 plus 16 on our turn. And so, against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would on average here do 32 damage per round, and against a 15 armor class, it would be 23 DPR. And I mean, that's fine, really. It's just kind of bottom half of tier three compared to other sustained DPR builds that I've done to date. Check the video description to see links to the spreadsheets so you can see those comparisons and graphs and spreadsheets. So yeah, here we're just kind of a little bit below average when compared to other builds that I've made with the express intent of doing good sustained damage, right? That's an important distinction to make here, I think. We've got some decent utility, some decent damage, a ton of fun flavor, and some okay survivability, especially if we sacrifice a teeny bit of damage for it. Overall, it feels like a pretty versatile, pretty decent budding blade master, but it's about to get so much better. Because yes, at level seven, it's time to start working towards our shadow blade. I think at this point in our character's story, like they're hearing the whisperings of this legendary blade that is part of their clan or family's heritage and power. Something that I've been training to be worthy of and after all this practice with the blade, I'm starting to feel a connection to that mythical, mystical blade, finally. Whatever your reasons, yes, we are taking warlock levels now. Why warlock? For a number of reasons. First of all, there are only three classes that get access to Shadowblade, Wizard, Sorcerer, and Warlock. I guess more if you count Lore Bards or Eldritch Knights or Arcane Tricksters, but the spell comes too late for all of those, in my opinion. Now, there are arguments for Wizard and Sorcerer here instead of Warlock, no question, but I like the Warlock best here because, like monks, they get their resources, their spell slots, back on a short rest, right? That felt like some really great synergy for a character who's very interested in taking short rests as often as possible already. What's more, Conceptually, like, I'm building this character around this weapon, right? And I mean, what other potential class or subclass in this game has as close a bond with their weapon as a Hexblade Warlock? Because, yeah, Warlocks get their patron, their subclass, right at Warlock 1, and of course we're going Hexblade, but not actually for the reason that we usually go Hexblade. We don't care about attacking with our charisma on this character. What we do care about are, well, the flavor of having a bond with and drawing power from your weapon, which I love here, but also the nice defensive benefits that the subclass gets. Because Hexblades get the Hex Warrior ability first up, which gives us proficiency with all martial weapons and medium armor and shields. Are we going to use those things? Not yet, we haven't earned them yet, but we've got access now when we need it. Hex Warrior also lets us use our charisma modifier for attacks, like I've said, but there's some potential weirdness here. It probably doesn't work with Shadowblade. It tells us that you channel your will through a specific weapon, and I don't know, Shadowblade only lasts for a minute, so if you cast the spell later, is it that same Shadowblade that you had summoned earlier? Is this the same weapon? You could obviously make the argument. I'm sure most DMs would probably allow it, but rules as written 
feels a little dicey. And we didn't build this character with that intent anyway, our charisma sucks. The other main defensive perk that we get from Hexblade though, besides the medium armor and shield thing, is the shield spell. Hexblades are the only warlocks that get shield. And it is just such a powerful spell that I wanted to prioritize it. As a reminder, shield lets us use our reaction and a spell slot to increase our armor class by five until our next turn when we are hit with an attack, potentially causing that attack to miss. And for a still armorless monk with a mediocre wisdom score, that's a welcome boon. As for the other spells that I'd grab at this level, I'd probably be sure to get armor of Agathis for some additional defensive benefits and offensive returning damage when you're hit potentially. And sure, hex. It's not a no brainer spell, especially with our limited number of spell slots, but if you're making four attacks against a target, that extra d6 of damage that it adds to every single attack can really add up if you're going to be hitting the same target for more than a round or two. I'd probably use it for the next couple of levels for our concentration until we finally get our Shadow Blade at least. I almost forgot, we also get Hexblade's Curse here, which is a feature people like to talk about and build around. I certainly have before with things like the Nuclear Wizard, right? The Will Wheaton build. But Hexblade Curse just lets us, once per short rest, curse a target with our bonus action so that every time we do damage to them, we add our proficiency bonus in damage and we crit on a 19 or a 20. We even regain some hit points when the target dies. So this ability is nice, but kind of like Hex, it can be a little tricky to use properly. General rule of thumb, if you think the target is going to survive for more than one round, go ahead and curse them. Put it on the biggest priority target, right? It's especially good if you're running low on key points and aren't going to be using Flurry of Blows for like five or six rounds, right? An extra three damage per hit from this, soon four, really adds up if you're going to hit them three or four times. And doubling your crit chance and also healing when they die, those are all pretty nice perks. So yeah, it's a good ability. At level eight, we would be a Warlock 2, and that means we get Eldritch Invocations. There are a few good ones to consider here. For this level at least, go ahead and take Armor of Shadows. It lets us cast Mage Armor at will without spending a spell slot. Mage Armor's 13 armor class plus our dexterity modifier is one AC higher than our wisdom plus our dexterity that we get from Unarmored Defense, right? But I would replace that invocation next level with something else. Fiendish Vigor is not a bad choice here for an at will spell slot free casting of False Life for a D4 plus 4 of temporary hit points less squishiness is good. But the most important invocation for us to take here is Eldritch Mind. This gives us advantage on our concentration checks, and as a monk who doesn't have constitution saving throw proficiency, and will always be concentrating on a spell from here on out, and who only has a 15 constitution at the moment, this is a really big deal, and very welcome. But at level 9, Warlock 3, everything changes for our character. This is the point in our character's path that they have finally proven themselves worthy, perhaps once again worthy, of donning their clan or family's armor and bonding with that all-important clan blade. I would definitely talk about this moment with your DM and like plan something momentous and important to happen for your character, right? So, okay, let's pause for a moment here. Armor on a monk. Ever since my good friend Chris, Triant Monk, put out a series of videos exploring the pros and cons to putting armor on a monk, I've had people in the comment section of my videos asking me to do an armored monk. I'm always hesitant because I love the idea of the quintessential kung fu master my body is is the only weapon I need kind of character, but for this build, I think it works really nicely, conceptually, especially. But I mean, don't we give up a ton of stuff if we armor ourselves as a monk? Well, 
we give up two things, really. One, our unarmored movement. So, yeah, at this level, we've got an extra 15 feet of movement if we're unarmored and unshielded, meaning if we went wood elf, half elf, we'd have 50 feet of move speed. That's awesome. Giving some of that up might hurt. The other thing that we would need to give up would be our martial arts features. As a reminder, that means using dexterity instead of strength for monk weapon attacks that aren't finesse weapons at least, right? Because we can use dexterity for those regardless of whether we had the martial arts feature or not. But also we'd be giving up using our martial arts die for our unarmed strike damage and getting to make an unarmed strike as a bonus action. Those things are all great, but if we're not planning on making unarmed strikes anymore and we already have a finesse weapon, then we don't really care about any of those martial arts abilities. So I say don that clan armor because it's time to summon our shadow blade because yes we also get second level warlock spells here and that means we finally get our shadow blade let's break the spell down it's a bonus action to cast lasts for a minute and requires concentration casting it causes a sword of gloom to solidify in your hand now this is important. It counts as a simple weapon with which we are proficient. If you recall, monk weapons are short swords and simple weapons that lack the heavy and two-handed properties, so there's no reason that the shadow blade as a simple weapon shouldn't qualify as a monk weapon. Naturally, you should discuss it with your DM to be sure as always, but assuming that they're following the rules here, as long as we spend a key point as part of our action, we should be able to make a third attack every round with the shadow blade as a bonus action, thanks to fueled attack, right? It does 2d8 psychic damage on a hit, has the finesse, importantly, light and throne properties, and when you attack with it while standing in dim light or darkness, you have advantage on the attack. Perfect. Next question. Can the shadow blade be a kensei weapon? I don't know why not. We're told that a kensei weapon can be any simple or martial weapon that lacks the heavy and special properties. Nothing in there about a summoned weapon being disqualified. The shadow blade is a simple weapon that doesn't have the heavy or special properties. Chevere. Next question. Should you use a shield now with your medium armor? I think probably. Plus two to our armor class from using a shield is nice, and there are plenty of magical shields out there that can bump it even higher or give other benefits. The Shadow Blade is a one-handed weapon. The only thing that would give me pause is that with full hands, right, a weapon and a shield, we'd be prevented from casting spells that had somatic or verbal components unless we took the Warcaster feat, which I hate. <laughs> now, we only have two spell slots, right, and one of them is getting used for Shadow Blade. That last one, I'm probably saving for the shield spell when I need it most. But at my table, we can drop a weapon as part of the reaction required to cast shield, which has a somatic component. If that doesn't fly at your table, I mean, honestly, I'm still probably using a shield. Do you want a permanent plus two or better with a magic shield to your armor class or a once per short rest plus five via the shield spell? And yeah, there are potentially other things that we want to be casting with that spell slot anyways. Misty Step is probably the other second level spell I'd prioritize here, but Mirror Image can be a nice defensive buff as well that doesn't require concentration. Regardless, when you drop your Shadow Blade, you can summon it back into your hand with a bonus action. Talk to your DM, figure out what works at your table, probably equip a shield. Next question, what should we take for our Pact Boon that we also get at Warlock 3? It's a good question. I think I'm going Pact of the Chain. Talisman gives you some potentially fun utility and protection or defensive benefits. Tome can give you some additional spells if you think you need them, but Pact of the Blade, surprisingly, maybe, doesn't really work for us. With Pact of the Blade, we either magically create a Pact weapon into our hand from nothing, but we've summoned the Shadow Blade when we cast the spell, right? So 
It's like you don't re-summon that summoned weapon. I, I guess your DM might allow like both of those things to happen at the same time. You cast a spell and like summon a weapon with Packed Blade. If so, cool. Otherwise, we can make an existing weapon our Packed Weapon, but it requires a ritual that lasts an hour, and Shadow Blade only hangs around for a minute. The only reasons we'd want Pact of the Blade anyway would be for the potentially cool invocations that can come with it. Eldritch Smite, Improved Pact Weapon, etc. We don't need Thirsting Blade because we already have extra attack, and unlike in Baldur's Gate 3, those don't stack. Take a drink. So Pact of the Chain is nice in that it lets you get the Find Familiar spell, but gives us extra warlocky options for our familiar. It can be an imp, a quasit, a pseudo-dragon, or a sprite. And all of those but the pseudo-dragon can turn invisible, and just like any familiar, they can take the help action, giving someone, hopefully you if you need it, advantage on your first attack at least, and Taking the help action doesn't break invisibility like attacking would, meaning that your imp or quasit, or I'd probably use a sprite as a wood elf, could go invisible, buzz in, pull your enemy pants down, blow raspberries in their ear, tickle their bum, and then fly away all day long without risking taking an opportunity attack at least, since you can only take an opportunity attack against an enemy that you can see. So at level nine, it's time for our next damage report. Things are vastly different for our character now compared to last check. We're wearing medium armor, possibly using a shield, and on round one, we're summoning our shadow blade with our bonus action and then making some attacks, and from there on, we're simply making two attacks with our action, spending a key point or two during that action to either deft strike, doing an extra d6 of damage, or key fueled attack to turn a miss into a hit. I guess technically you could also spend key with stunning strike if the situation called for it, but I'd personally not rely on that too much with this build. Doing so then triggers key fueled attack so that we could then, yes, make an attack with our shadow blade as a bonus action as well. For ease of calculation, I'm just going to assume that we're using deft strike every time. The truth is you're better off spending key to turn a miss into a hit then you are using Deft Strike to get an extra d6 of damage once per turn, but trying to do the math on how often you missed and by how much so that I know how many key points I have to spend is beyond my current mathematical capabilities. It's a lot easier to just add a d6 of damage to one attack per turn. Also, I am going to assume, yes, that we have advantage on our attacks. I mean, the familiar could give us advantage on at least one, and fighting in dim light or darkness gives us advantage on all of our attacks otherwise. I know you're not always going to be fighting in dim light or darkness, but the first time that I used Shadowblade in a build for my Bladesinger 2.0, surely I'm out of cards by now, I think, I don't know. I assumed advantage when I was crunching numbers there in the name of exploring the limits of what's possible under best case scenario conditions, so making a different assumption now kind of screws up my model. You can lower expectations for your damage numbers when you're fighting in bright light. But honestly, thanks to focused aim and are familiar, we might not be too far off from the damage numbers that I'm about to share with you even when we're fighting in bright light. Anyways, at this level, assuming all of the above, against a character with a 10 armor class, we would on average now do 47 damage per round. And against a 16 AC, it would be 45 DPR, barely less. And that's a fantastic 50% increase at low enemy ACs and over 100% increase 
at middling and higher ACs compared to last check, right? Very, very nice. Compared to other sustained DPR builds that I've done to date at this level, we're more like bottom half of tier two now. Big jump. Not to mention the huge increases we've had to our survivability and our utility as well. We are now experiencing prime shadow blade monkdom. At level 10, we would be a warlock four, and that means we get another ability score increase or feat, and I would absolutely be bumping my dexterity here to cap it at 20. And then at level 11, we'd be a warlock five and I wanted to get at least one more warlock level primarily so that we could get our spell slots to third level because yes now that we have third level spell slots we can upcast shadow blade so that it does 3d8 damage per hit a worthy investment I think and then yeah of course we get third level warlock spells now too so that means counterspell fear hypnotic pattern sure but Keep in mind, our charisma modifier is pretty crap. It's only a plus one. So instead, maybe grab stuff that just works, like fly. Perhaps most important here, I would say, make sure to grab Spirit Shroud. It's always this debate for me on whether to use Spirit Shroud or Shadow Blade. Both take a bonus action to cast and require concentration. Spirit Shroud adds a D8 of damage to all of your attacks, among other things. If we were going with Flurry of Blows, then yes, it's a good route to go. Three attacks with Shadow Blade and Deft Strike is slightly higher higher than Spirit Shroud and Flurry of Blows, not taking into account a magic weapon you might have, instead of, you know, using Shadow Blade, of course. But in that case, it's about the same depending on the weapon. But if we were doing that, we wouldn't be able to use medium armor and a shield, and our survivability goes way down. If you want to see a Shadow Monk build that goes that route with Spirit Shroud, uh, check out the Master of Shadows. We also do get a third invocation at Warlock 5, and I'm just going to say PYF, pick your favorite. I think one with shadows feels really nice, letting you go invisible when you're in dim light and darkness, which we kind of want to be anyway, so some kind of nice synergy there. Though you do become visible with this invocation if you even move, let alone taking an action or a reaction. Still situationally useful. Devil Sight isn't terrible, it lets you see in magical darkness. We already have have regular dark vision but yeah you could do the darkness devil sight thing i'm not really building around that for this build here but it's a thing at level 12 though yeah i would love to get up to fifth level spells to make my shadow blade hit for 4d8 among other things but as i've often talked about on this channel there's one major drawback or weakness to using shadow blade magic weapons exist <laughs> i mean sure if you upcast it high enough the damage on Shadow Blade will continue to scale, which is great. It helps it compete with magic weapons a little bit, but there's no way to increase the hit chance of the thing. And that's kind of a really big deal. Not to mention that, sure, increasing the damage by a D8 every two spell levels is nice, but I mean, flame tongue longswords exist in D&D, right? So it kind of stinks not being able to make Shadow Blade scale better if you want to commit to using it. But Kensei monks, actually have one of the only abilities in the game that would give the shadow blade some nice scaling making them arguably the subclass that can make the best use of this spell compared to all other subclasses in D&D 5e plus there are a lot of fun goodies in monk that interest me and we could always use more key points so Let's go back to Monk here. Surprisingly, since Monks sort of famously don't typically scale all that well, I think it's actually the best path for both our damage and our utility, and even survivability. So at Monk 7, we get Evasion, which is pretty awesome, letting us now take no damage if we succeed on a dexterity saving throw where we'd normally take half damage on a success, and then only 
half damage if we fail. Lol, fireballs. We also get stillness of mind, which could be nice or mostly useless depending on how it's ruled at your table. It lets you use your action to end a charmed or fear effect on yourself. So here's hoping you have access to your actions when you're charmed or feared. At level 13, we would be a monk eight, and that means we get another ability score increase or feat. And I think I'm taking resilient constitution here. I might have even done this before capping my dexterity if I found myself losing concentration a lot. Since we got the Eldritch Mind invocation, I'm hoping that will be enough to keep us safe most of the time, but now I feel super solid about our concentration checks. This feat bumps our constitution by one to get to a nice even 16 finally, and yes, gives us proficiency in constitution saves as well, meaning that we would now have a plus eight to our concentration checks, plus advantage. That should let us hold on to Shadowblade almost unfailingly. At level 13, it is time for our next damage report. Since last check, we have increased the damage from Shadowblade to 3d8 per hit, capped our dexterity at 20, and further increased our survivability and utility a bit. Also, I think that now that we have 8 key points per short rest, I'm going to go ahead and assume that we've got some key to spend on focused aim when we need it. Most combat encounters at most tables, again, only last, you know, three, four to up to six rounds. Round one, we're using our bonus action to cast Shadowblade. So that means like two to five rounds, most likely left in the encounter. We could spend one on Deft Strike every turn and still be left with one on average for most of the other rounds. And we'd probably never run out of key during the fight since, yeah, I mean, we're not gonna miss a lot of the time and we won't even need focused aim, right? So I'm just gonna assume that we're spending one key point on focused aim per round to give us an additional plus two to hit. It's imperfect math, I know, but I like doing that better than ignoring focused aim completely. And so, at this level, against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would now on average do 65 damage per round. And against an enemy with a 17 armor class, 65 damage per round. Yeah, it's like half a point of damage difference, but I'm rounding, so it's the same number. And I mean, that's perhaps one of, if not the greatest thing about this build, actually. The damage is decent. I mean, it's still kind of bottom half of tier two at this level compared to other sustained damage builds, but it is super duper accurate. This build almost never misses, at least assuming that we're fighting in dim light or darkness or otherwise have advantage. So I hope you've got a Twilight Cleric in your party to give you some dim light when you're fighting outside or somebody using fairy fire or knocking your enemies prone. Because yeah, when you've got advantage, you're like a heat seeking missile. All right, at level 14, we would be a monk nine. And this means we get an unarmored movement improvement. Wah. Now we could move across liquids and up vertical surfaces on our turn, and that's super fun and awesome and probably doesn't work for us. I mean, the ability itself, when you get the printed text for this specific ability in the book, it doesn't say that it doesn't work if we're wearing armor, but it's listed earlier as an improvement to unarmored movement, and that doesn't work if we're armored, right? And I mean, it makes sense that this wouldn't work if we're armored. You're not moving as fast, you're heavy. It's kind of a bummer, especially since that feature is the only thing we get at this level, other than another key point. At level 15, we would be a monk 10, and that means we get purity of body. This makes us immune to all disease and poison. Not bad. At level 16, we'd be a monk 11, and as a kensei, that means we get sharpen the blade. And this is the main reason I wanted to get back to monk. So now, as a bonus action, unfortunately, I wish we could just 
do it without resource expenditure other than key. But as a bonus action, we can spend up to three key points to grant one Kensei weapon, and yes, as a reminder, no reason our Shadow Blade can't be a Kensei weapon, a plus to hit and damage per key point spent. And yeah, this might be the only way rules is written to make a Shadow Blade a plus three weapon. And I love it. Yeah, it takes a bonus action. That sucks. It means we wouldn't be firing on all cylinders until round three. It means that for shorter fights, it's probably not worth doing unless we can somehow get Shadow Blade summoned before the fight starts, right? Like you can tell combat's about to break out, or maybe you're about to surprise the enemy. Ugh, yeah. Another thing that I really love about Baldur's Gate 3, drink. The way that you can usually anticipate a fight breaking out, go into turn-based mode, buff up first so that you're not wasting time during the fight to get up to speed. It's just so efficient. Mmm efficiency. Anyways, when we need it, that plus three to hit and damage will be fantastic. And it kind of actually makes me happy that usually this ability actually is going to be worthless for level 11 plus characters because we're told that it has no effect on magic weapons that already have a bonus to attack and damage rolls. And at level 11, if we're not using a shadow blade, I sure hope we've got a magic weapon that has a plus to hit and damage. And yeah, this is usually my biggest complaint about shadow blade, that it can't get bonuses to hit and damage. Now it's like a good thing that it doesn't have those bonuses innately. It is a perfect marriage here. We have a plus three shadow blade. Woohoo. We also do get a bump to our martial arts die from a 1d6 to a 1d8, which for us will just mean like a small bump for deft strike. But finally, at level 17, we would be a monk 12. That means we get another ability score increase or feat. And I mean, you could bump your wisdom here for better monk skills, among other things. Or even I thought about taking medium armor master to essentially bump your armor class by one and then not have disadvantage on stealth checks in medium armor. But probably the best thing we can do for our damage would be to take the fighter initiate feat, which gives us a fighting style. I mean, you could do this by taking a single fighter level instead of monk 12, I guess. But might as well go monk. We can get a key point for it. And yeah, we could take the dueling fighting style, getting an extra two damage to each shadow blade attack. It's not huge, but six damage per round will sometimes be the difference between an enemy who survives one more round and one who doesn't. For our final damage report, then. Since last check, we've added a couple of damage per hit from that fighting style, a little bump from our martial arts die increase, but most importantly, we've given our shadow blade the potential to be a plus three weapon thanks to sharpen the blade. And so, against an enemy with a 10 AC here, we would on average do 81 damage per round, and against an enemy with an 18 armor class, it would be 81 damage per round. And yeah, no difference at all mathematically here. 81.4 damage on average for both a 10 up to an 18 AC. And it's hard to know where to say this build kind of ranks compared to other sustained damage builds that I've done to date here at this level. At low armor classes, 81, 82 is like mid tier three. At high armor classes, it's like mid tier one. I mean, allowing for a plus three from sharpen the blade and a plus two from focused aim, which let's be honest, could be higher than a plus two, right? We could spend three key points to get it all the way up to a plus six. And we do have 12 key points per short rest now. But even if it's just a plus two, we're sitting on a plus 16 to hit. With a 3d8 plus three weapon, we get to make three attacks per turn with. Ideally, with Elven Accuracy's triple advantage. We are never missing with this character. So let's get into some final thoughts here. The tier score for this build, if you take the damage that they do at all of the armor 
armor classes we calculate for at each of the four damage reports and just average it into one big number, we end up with a 51. And that puts them kind of in the bottom half of tier two, right between the sniper and the thornlock. And that's not bad, but that number doesn't really tell the whole story here. I mean, that number never really tells the whole story for any build, but it feels like especially the case for this build. The reality is that I probably give too much weight to very low and very high enemy armor classes when I'm doing these tier scores. It would be nice to have a simple, effective way to give enemy armor classes that we're more likely to be fighting against, like more weight in the calculations, right? And that would change depending on the damage report. I know, you've got great ideas on how to do that feel free to keep sharing them. Not doing this is more a matter of me not wanting to go back and adjusting all of the numbers and then being annoyed that all of those old videos say one thing, but what's reflected in the actual spreadsheets would be different. At the end of the day, it's a model. It gives us ballparks, right? But yeah, I mean, this build never breaks that century mark. We never, we're never averaging 100 DPR, even in the late game. That's kind of too bad. But against very high enemy ACs, it's beating out almost every build I've ever done, with few exceptions. At level 17, there are five points of difference between the damage you do against a 10 armor class and the damage you do against a 25 armor class. Five points. That is the flattest line I've ever seen on a graph for any of my builds. Yeah, just go look at the graph down in the video description. It's so beautiful. But yeah, it makes me want to like rename this build to like the Precision Blade or something. That really great accuracy, along with the super cool kind of like Shadow Samurai, but as a monk, not a fighter feel to it. I have really fallen in love with this character way more than I thought I would when I set out to put armor on a monk. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. It's my favorite class coupled with my favorite spell. But I mean, really solid damage, incredibly consistent damage, with most of the cool, fun utility and flavor of the monk, coupled with some solid survivability, especially once we get to Hexblade, and all using my favorite lightsaber wannabe spell in the game. I think this character has like risen to the top of my to play list. I might have to see if I can find a Kensei mod for BG3 so I can play it there at least. Take a drink. <laughs> But anyway, I certainly hope you get to play it sometime soon too, but that is the build for the week. I love you guys. I hope you know this. Thank you so much for all that you do for me, for this channel. I hope you have a really fantastic week and a great day. And if you have neither of those things, then I hope you'll hang in there. Better days are sure to come. I hope that you will do good and be kind and stay safe and that I see you again very soon. But until then, take care. Bye. Step into the silence, take it in your own two hands And scatter it like diamonds all across this land Yeah, 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 yeah Blaze it in the morning, wear it like an iron skin the only things worth living for are innocence and magic. Amen. David Gray fans out there, 
what's your favorite song uh, of his other than something off of that album, uh, Babylon? Was it Babylon? What was the name of that album? The one that Babylon's off of. Um, his popular one, his most popular one anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've seen him in concert. I love that album, but never actually listened to much of his stuff otherwise, except for um, Shine. But yeah, uh, let me know. Give me some, uh, give me some recommendations. My name is Colby, and today I have zero bothers to give. <laughs> this is like my favorite shirt right now. Pooh Bear's the best. Okay. Have you ever have you ever wanted to build a monk that took advantage of armor? No, don't say that. Say um. There's like a light coming through here. It's shining on my hand. Oh, on my elbow. No, sun. <laughs> How did the morning come so soon? We're done for. Ah. 1970s uh, Hobbit animated show. Um, callback. Anybody? Right. Um, what was I? What was I doing before I got distracted? <laughs> Why is the beginning always so difficult? That sun. I gotta fix that, don't I? Where is that coming from? Right there. <laughs> is just in the exact wrong spot. Penetrating the defenses! Ugh, the hair is bugging me today. Stop it, stop it. Whatever. Getting a haircut this week. Mm. Focus here, not on Shepard. I know you like Shepard. I like her too. We also, as a monk one, <clears throat> get a special ding from our laptop. <laughs> the sun is back! No! Stop it! My tape, my tape is not working. Oy. <laughs> Yes, we are going for pure Saved by the Bell. <laughs> oh, so annoying. <laughs> Whatever. Maybe I could call this build the Shadow Blade Master. The Shadow Blade Master? The Monk Blade Master. Um, not key fueled attack. Focused aim. Okay, no. <laughs> I'm getting these terms mix mixed up. <laughs> Uh, focused aim. Not key fueled attack. <laughs> ah. 